don't know if you ever have given any thought to what a church is supposed to do. Or given any thought, maybe to say it a different way, any thought to why we gather every week. What is the point of that? What is the aim of a church? You know, and I ask that as, you know, sort of as a corporate question that it's partly my responsibility to answer as a pastor, and maybe other people don't think about it. I understand that. But you might even think about it personally. What is it that makes you come to church? Not that saying coming to church is the right way to express it. But what makes, what are you looking for? I mean, some people go to church and they're looking, they're looking for, you know, some kind of connections to move along their business. Some people are coming looking that they might find friends. Other people are hoping that they hear some sort of inspirational message or maybe an instructional message where it gives them the, the three keys to keeping control of their anger or the, the four tips for having a better marriage or some other such thing. But the question then is, what is a church supposed to do? What's it supposed to do for the the members in the church, what's it supposed to do for the world? And really, we've been trying to answer that question these past several weeks. New Life Church answers that question this way, that it is our mission to engage people disconnected from God so they delight themselves in Him through Jesus. To engage people disconnected from God so they delight in him through Jesus. And that's what we understand our mission to be. That's what we think a church is supposed to do, which means that we are aiming for delight. That delight is the end target. Or to say it another way, we are aiming that church might be the means by which your hearts are infinitely and eternally happy. That's what I understand a church to be about. See, there are lots of other things that it could be. We could try and get more people to come, like we were a club and we were having a membership drive. We could have it be more like school, where we're teaching you to fill a notebook. But it's none of those things. What a church is to do is to aim all the way to delight. And I, I understand the, the, this delight to be the foundation or the fundamental piece that explains what we're trying to do at New Life Church. The last couple of weeks, Pastor Travis uh, came and talked to you about engaging, about being on the mission of Jesus. When, when Jesus said, as my Father sent me, so I send you, he has given us a mission. And we express the mission to engage those disconnected from God or to be on the same mission as Jesus. And then last week, uh, Pastor Eric came and shared what we're to do as far as connecting with one another, that, that our response to the gospel can never be a solo response, but it must be a response 
that brings us into community. And while those are important and those are both represented in the mission of New Life Church, both of those serve the end that your heart might be happy and that you might spread that happiness to the people who are close to you as you connect with them and the people who are maybe outside of this building as you engage with them. But we are all about doing what we can to get your heart and my heart happier in Jesus. And so I'm going to show you that from the scriptures. I want to show you that I'm not just making it up because I like it. Okay? But I want to show you that actually that's the way the scripture expresses the driving force of the Christian life. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 expresses it even in these terms. This is a letter from uh, the Apostle Peter, whom uh, you know from the Gospels as one of the close companions of Jesus. And he's writing to uh, the, the other believers, to the church of Jesus. And he has uh, this to say, beginning in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so here he's writing to a church that's, uh, that's struggling, struggling, that's scattered around, and he starts his letter by saying this, In this you rejoice. He, the leading idea here is your heart's happiness. The, the deep, abiding, eternal satisfaction of your soul. And so the Apostle Peter leads with that idea. So New Life Church leads with that idea. The, we want to engage those who are disconnected from God, so they delight. We want to lead with that idea too. But in this re you rejoice, which sort of invites the question, if you're thinking about this, in this you rejoice, in what? What is this? Right? He doesn't explain this. It just starts off, in this. Well, if you go back to verse 3, he tells you what this is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this? According to his great mercy. His great mercy is this. His great mercy is that thing that invites our delight, our rejoicing. The fact that God has not treated you as your sins deserve. The fact that God has showered upon you his blessing that you did not and cannot earn 
that he has sought you when you didn't seek him? I mean, when I think about that, the fact that when I was unlovely, he loved me anyway. Yeah, I can rejoice in his great mercy. The effect of that mercy was that he caused us to be born again to a living hope. And what should make me happy about that? He caused me to be born again to a living hope. Which means that God himself took responsibility to pursue me when I didn't pursue him. To lay hold on me when I refused him. To embrace me when I tried to push him away. And he caused me to be born again into a living hope. The very fact that anyone would love me when I don't love them back or when I didn't, that they would pursue me when I didn't pursue them should bring a smile to my face. And so I rejoice that he caused me to be born again into a living hope. He caused me to be born again. He gave me a new start where I was once dead in my trespasses and sin, he made me alive. I mean, that's amazing. That whatever, whatever was old in my life, he has made new. And now I have a, gr a new start and a new life that bears a different kind of fruit for uh, eternity because he has caused me to be born again. That's amazing. And will cause me to rejoice. At least a little bit. And he caused me to be born again into a living hope. So it is not just that I'm hoping this afternoon my team will win. It's not just that I'm hoping that I'll have enough money for retirement. It's that I have a hope that grows and grows as time goes on. It's living. And that it is absolutely certain. Because that hope is a resurrection hope. It is made certain by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this hope is living. Death can't kill it. A cross can't eradicate it. It is hope that nothing can stop because of the resurrection power of Jesus. Is this like registering yet? That there is good reason to hope here? There is good reason to rejoice? That I might have just a little reason to be happy? Okay, maybe not. But you've been born again, this living hope, into an inheritance. Into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So that it's not... It's not losing value. Okay, it's independent of the interest rate. It doesn't matter what you do with it. It is kept for you. Can't be taken away. It can't be destroyed. It's not going anywhere. It is there for you, and it will be there for you for certain. Kept in heaven for you. So that 
one day it's going to be even better because you will arrive into this glorious inheritance. It's kept for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So this inheritance that is future, this, this hope, this living hope that we have that is future, that's being, that is sure and steadfast and not going anywhere and not losing value, it's kept for you, but also you are kept for it. You are guarded. You're not going anywhere. The one who, the one who um, laid hold of you who caused you to be born, born again into a living hope, the one who caused you that is keeping you so that you will certainly make it all the way to where there's an inheritance kept for you. You're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so I just want to suggest to you that the certainty of this, the the resurrection verification that God has given us in Jesus, this new lease on life, this unmerited mercy, all of this is yours and is good reason to rejoice. Okay, that's where we start. In this, you rejoice. And so if you're thinking about what does a church do, right? A church points you to this points you to this reason to rejoice. And I, it's my hope and prayer and ambition in life that week after week after week you will be reminded that you have very good reason to rejoice. That's what we're doing here. Okay? But there's a problem. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So what I'm trying to talk about is to talk about a joy and rejoicing that is independent of circumstances. Not a happiness that comes and goes that uh, gets better when you know I have good news and worse when I have bad news. But rather, we're talking about rejoicing in the moment when there is grief and trial. Look at that. So I love it that, that even though this inheritance is kept for me in the future, it, the effect of it is now. Now you're to have some rejoicing. For a little while, it, probably a good translation here is although necessary. Although necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. We live in a world where trials are necessary. We live in a world that is broken and you're not going to escape it and no one is saying that this is your best life now. No one should be saying that because it's not. This is, this is, this is not positive thinking that things will get better. They might not get better, but it doesn't matter because you have such a substantive and eternal reason for rejoicing that cannot be taken away from you, that even though you're grieved with these awful experiences, even then, 
your heart can be happy. Even now, although the grievous trials are necessary. You see, this is what a church is to do week after week after week, is to remind ourselves that no matter how bad the week was, no matter how many things there are to fear in the next week, there is reason to be solid and to rejoice and for your heart to be happy in Jesus. This is a theological reason for the existence of the church. Okay, and I didn't, I didn't come by this naturally, I'm just going to say. Okay, when I got started, when I got started, I was encouraged that, you know, the church is like supposed to get more people here. That's like the goal. Or that the church is somehow to be on mission and be out there like, you know, evangelizing. Okay? And while those are results of this, this is the reason for existence. And this is theological more than it is personal. It is about God. It is more about God than it is about us. Because he is the reason we're going to be happy. Now I say that I didn't start out with this. Um, because I didn't. And just about three weeks ago, our family went out uh, for uh, Frosties together at Wendy's. Because uh, around the second week of September, uh, we do that every year to remember um, Lindsey Grace Reevely. She was stillborn on September 13th, 1996. Some of you may remember that. Um, but our family, when Marsha's on the way to the hospital, we stopped and got Frosties at Wendy's. And so every year, that's our way of remembering her. And I'm just going to say, we were grieved with what we felt was the most extreme trial ever. And I'm sure that, you know, all of us have extreme trials that we think are our own and nobody else has it worse than us, but they're real. And when she entered our lives and left our lives, we recognized, and I, well, I should say I recognized, that I'd better have, I'd better have something that is so good to, that compensates for something that is so bad. That I needed something to hang on to that would not just make up for my loss, but would be for uh, now and for all eternity a reason to hang on, a reason to move forward, a reason to be happy. If I was ever going to be happy, I needed something that was so substantive and so real that a disaster like that couldn't blow it up. And that's when this became what I understand to be the mission of the church that my role here is week after week to remind you that you've got something that can't be destroyed that is better than anything that you might lose. Because how many people do you know that say, oh, my family's the reason for my existence. My family's what gives my life meaning. Well, that's, you know, 
I can't say that I was that far away from that either until it blew up on me. And how many people then do you know that are ultimately disappointed by their family or hurt by their family? See, those are, those are good things, but they are not ultimate things. And those good things that are not ultimate things, when we make them more than they should, then our happiness crumbles. And what I'm hoping to communicate this morning is that while all of those things are blessings of God in some way or another, they are not ultimate. That what we are talking about here is the ultimate reason for rejoicing that cannot be taken away, it cannot be destroyed, and will ultimately rescue you from those other uh, things that break your heart. And so even now, we rejoice, though we are grieved with various trials. What I am after in this world is more of Jesus, because more of Jesus will be the thing that anchors my heart to this living hope and makes it happy even now. These trials, my trial, your trial, the things that we would rather not have in our lives, that pain that we don't really escape from is here for a reason. And that's the way he expresses it, right? I mean, it, I love the honesty of this. He's not making this up. This is not Pollyanna hoping that it's going to get better. This is as real as it gets. These various trials are necessary so that, he gives us a reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found resulting in the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thing that this trials, these trials do for you is they strip away those other lesser things that our hearts would have hope for so that our faith being tested finds its only source its own, or its only foundation in the person of God and what he's done for us in Christ so that then our faith is genuine and he says this genuine faith is the most valuable thing you could ever have. More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. I mean, if I had a big pile of gold up here, right? And I said, come help yourself. Come help yourself. Some of you would say, I know it's God. I know he doesn't have a pile of gold. It's all fake. Some of you would say that. But there'd probably be somebody along the line that would say, you know what, just in case, I'm going to go get some gold, right? Because that would be pretty valuable. If I just had a couple coins in my pocket, I could, you know, it'd be good. You know what? You have something better already. You have a hope in heaven and a faith in God who will save you through Jesus so that you can have joy now and you're going to believe that and have genuine faith, that's going to be more 
that to be more precious, more valuable, better than any pile of gold you could stash away. Because that genuine faith will result. See, again, this is, a, this is the goal of this. Will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that one day, there will be praise and honor and glory because your faith is genuine. Because you have found that Jesus is more precious than any of these other things that your heart would love. So that when you get to heaven, there will be praise and glory and honor for Jesus Christ. And I think plenty to go around. doesn't say that there will be praise, or honor, and glory for God. I mean, praise, or honor, and glory. I think you will participate in that praise, honor, and glory, the revelation of Jesus Christ, when your faith hangs on like that and your hearts are happy like that. So, in this we rejoice, even though it hurts now, because our hope is better. And then he goes on to say the hope uh, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's a couple things that are going on here that I want to make sure that you see because I want to do everything I can to help your heart be happier. One of the things that's going on here is this is a letter written by Peter. Okay? Peter was a close companion of Jesus. He was the one who, of course, said, even though everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. Right? It was Peter who then saw the risen Jesus in a room that was closed and locked for fear of the authorities. And Jesus walks in and shows his hands in his side and says, believe. And Peter did. But Thomas was not there to see. And in John chapter 20, it tells us that the next time Thomas was there, and except that Thomas had told the disciples, you know what, forget about it. Unless I can put my finger in, in you know, his wounds and, and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus does it again. Jesus walks into this locked room, there he is, and he shows himself to Thomas. He says, here, check me out. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, blessed are you because you believed when you have seen. More blessed are those who have not seen but still believe. And so Peter, I think, has those words echoing in a letter to people who've never maybe seen Jesus, right? And he says, you have not seen him but you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And so there is this encouragement that you don't have to see Jesus to believe in him. But the other thing that happens there is that right after that locked room experience, then a few days later, Peter's out fishing with his friends, and Jesus comes up on the shore and says, hey, you know, there's more fish on the other side of that boat. And he's they throw it over there, and they get a large catch of fish. Peter swims to shore. They all have breakfast together. 
and then Peter and Jesus go for a walk. They go for a walk, and Jesus asks Peter questions. He says, Peter, do you love me? Then he asks again, Peter, do you love me? Then he asks again, Peter, do you love me? Those three questions to counterbalance, in some respects, Peter's three denials. Why didn't Jesus ask a different question? Why didn't Jesus say, well, Peter, do you believe? Or did he say, why didn't he say, Peter, I want you to make a decision for me? He said, Peter, do you love me? And you see, what is happening here, I think, in this text is that Peter is explaining what he understands to be the nature of faith. The nature of saving faith is not that I have decided for Jesus. That, that makes me crazy. Okay, I mean, I, I hear stats from like Christian camps all the time. We had 72 decisions this summer. What does that even mean? Or you talk about crusade evangelism, and, and they, they have those people streaming to the front, making decisions for Christ. And that's not a way, really, that the Bible talks about faith as decision. You might decide who you're going to vote for. You might decide to buy a vacuum cleaner. But that is not saving faith. Saving faith is a... Is a um, a comprehension of what God has done for you in Christ so that your heart is affected and you love him. You see, that's the, that's the great commandment, isn't it? Jesus asked, what's, what's the most important thing? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's love. It's what happens in your affections that betrays what has already happened in your heart. And so this love is belief. This love, the parallel nature of this verse, uh, informs me that to believe is to love, or to love is to believe. And so there is no decision apart from love. I want this to be very helpful to you. I mean, we've had generations of the church in America that have been built on decisions for Christ where a heart is unaffected. And the church is filled with people who have thought one thing and love another. I just want to encourage you parents. Parents, it, this, it's hard to be a parent and especially to navigate the, the faith of your children because you want to make sure they're believing the right things. No doubt about that. And children... You know, there are a lot of children who are drawn out in love for Jesus that they don't exactly have words for. And what is a parent tempted to do? Well, parents like me want to make sure they get it right. Want to make sure that they, you know, believe the right thing. That they have a decision, that they have a date where they can check a box and say, I'm in. When, I think, the more biblical way is what is happening in their heart? Is the heart transformed? Are they born again to a living hope? Are they loving the one whom they can't see? 
That's the question. Not are they deciding, not are they, you know, um, assenting to certain religious fact. That's not what we're talking about either. Not, it's not agreement. It's an embrace of a person who then will change your heart. And that's just expressed here as clearly as it can. You love him. And you see, that's really what I hope will happen at New Life Church. And then he says, that happens, and then here we are again. We end in the same place we started. In this you rejoice. And now what do we have at the end? You love him and believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. You rejoice. This, and this, he doesn't even know how to say it. He rejoices with joy. Well, what other kind of rejoicing are you going to have? Rejoices with joy. In other words, he just doubles down on joy. Because he recognizes what is his. And invites you to rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. There are no words. That's why we've got to double down on it. That's why we've got to say joy with joy with joy. I don't know what else to say. I'm supposed to talk about it, but I'm not very good at it. I'm going to rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. The glory of Christ is at stake in our joy. Do you think about that, really? I mean, some of you, um, some of you have, you know, thought about this in other terms, perhaps. But, you know, the church. I mean, the church exists for the glory of Christ. And the His glory and our good are one and the same thing. I'm going to submit to you. That's my uh, theory. In other words our rejoicing, our greater happiness, and the glory of Christ happen at the same moment, in the same act of believing, in the same act of loving. So that they're not two things like, oh, God just, you know, wants a lot of glory for himself, and he's just like doing something else with me. He likes, wants me to be as happy as I can contain so that he might receive glory. This just this reminds me of a story that just came to my mind that I apologize for if it doesn't help you. But there's a, a, a family that uh, has, uh, uh, he's passed away and she's uh, moved closer to her family, but she made this, uh, this chocolate cake that I'm just going to say was extremely good. And they had us over one day and she made the cake and I happened to, I happened to point out that I really liked it, and that, you know, another piece would suit me just fine. <laughs> and, and I may or may not have gone on and on and on about how good the chocolate cake was. Well, there was, you know, it was a, ten days later or something, her, our doorbell rings, and she comes, and here's another chocolate cake just like that one. And she's giving me the whole cake. <laughs> and she gives me the whole cake. And I said, well, thank you. Why would you do a thing like this? And she told me something I'll never forget. She said, it pays to rave. <laughs> 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 
And I realized, I realized that my glorifying that cake, okay, and my good, we're one and the same, right? See, that's what I'm saying. That's, what, that's what's going on with the Christian life, is that God's glory and your good are one and the same. Your joy, your rejoicing with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory is the thing. It brings you happiness and God's glory, and they're not two separate things. They're one thing. That's why we as a church can make it our aim to be as happy as we possibly can in Christ. That's what we're doing. Everything else comes out of that. And so that's what I submit to you as the mission and the purpose and why New Life Church exists, why we do what we do on uh, Sunday morning, why we exist as a, why we have a life group, why we do everything we do so that we are all helping each other rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory so that we're happy and God receives glory. Now again, I go back to kind of where I started. You may have come saying, if only... If only I could find, you know, two keys to um, successfully get rid of my uh, anger. Or if I only could find, the, you know, a pathway to a happy family or whatever you are after. All of those things are uh, smaller and less substantial and not stable enough for your happiness. What you are after, what... A church is designed to remind you of is that you have a hope in heaven that cannot be kept from you that you will be saved for so you can enjoy forever and it gives you joy now and your joy in that now brings glory to Christ and that's what the church is about and so it's not you're not gonna get like three steps and what to do today what you get today is a reminder that your heart needs to be happier than it currently is, and we pursue that for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled that you are drawing us to yourself for our happiness and your glory. Would you be pleased Help us love you as we should. Father, it feels sometimes like we're out of control of the way our heart feels. And I just ask that you grant us grace. A part of that great mercy that you give us would be that our hearts would be transformed. And so, Father, if there is somebody here this morning who's on the front end and just considering what it means to be a Christian, God, I pray that you would uh, cause them to be born again into a living hope that they might love you, that they might believe in you, that they might be filled with joy inexpressible. And Father, I do ask that that would be really the, the, the heartbeat of all of us, that our hearts would be happy in Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen.